Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. To the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. Carlos Cagina is the technical producer and Ryan White is the live stream producer. Check out my YouTube and Rumble channel, Strange Planet. We are about three months shy of the 75th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident, but we're going to discuss it a few months early because... The 75th anniversary edition of Witness to Roswell, Unmasking, the government's biggest cover-up has just been released. The co-authors, the world's foremost Roswell investigators, Thomas J. Carey and Donald R. Schmidt, are, are with us for the next two hours. And in the annals of American UFO history, few incidents have inspired, inspired as uh, much fascination and speculation as the one in Roswell, New Mexico in July of 1947. That summer, during the dawn or at the dawn of the Cold War, when the U.S. Army Air Forces sent out a shocker of a press release announcing they'd recovered a flying disc from a ranch near Roswell. Then a few days later, the story changed and it was reported the debris recovered was in fact a weather balloon. But behind all the UFO mania, there lies an uneasy truth. And the events that transpired that summer are anything but clear-cut with admitted cover-ups and conflicting explanations. Witness to Roswell uh, remains a classic in the field of ufology. It's filled with hard-hitting eyewitness testimony of one of the most important events of all time, the actual recovery of a UFO outside of Roswell. For more than 70, well, now nearly 75 years, government authorities have led us to believe that the wreckage was merely a very conventional weather balloon. But the witnesses who were there continue to tell a different story. Witness to Roswell, the 75th anniversary edition, once again provides a can't-put-down written account of what really transpired in Roswell Seven and a half decades ago, it pries loose the truth the government doesn't want us to know, including the revelations of Walter Hout. And uh, the, the 75th edition, 75th anniversary edition, includes a growing litany of deathbed confessions describing the little people recovered at the crash site. The most comprehensive timeline of events ever published on this seminal event. The identity of the Boeing engineer called in to examine the exotic wreckage from the crash. What really took place at the Roswell Base Hospital and what nurse, what the nurse actually uh, ordered, the children's caskets. The story of the soldier who wore gloves at the dinner table after guarding the bodies. Clearly, the implications of this information are foreboding. One need only look at the, the fact that officials now have four explanations for this historic event, but to which one do all the witnesses testify on their deathbeds. Thomas J. Carey has a BS, uh, Bachelor of Science degree in Business Administration from Temple University, a master's degree in anthropology from California State. And uh, he also received a fellowship to pursue a PhD in anthropology at the University of Toronto. Tom became interested in UFOs while in high school and rekindled that interest in 1986 when he became the MUFON State Section Director for Southeastern Pennsylvania. 
And since 1991, Tom's research has focused solely on the so-called Roswell incident that occurred near the town of Roswell, New Mexico in July 47. Tom also became a special investigator for CUFOs, the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies in 1992 and served on its board of directors from 97 through 2001. He's appeared as a guest on a number of radio and television shows concerning the Roswell incident, as well as appearing in several film documentaries. Donald R. Schmidt, the former co-director of the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies, where he served as director of special investigations for 10 years. And prior to that, he was a special investigator for the late Dr. J. Allen Hynek for the International UFO Reporter. Don graduated cum laude from Concordia University with a degree in liberal arts. He's the author of dozens of articles about UFOs, as well as the co-author of a number of best-selling books, UFO Crash at Roswell, The Truth About the UFO Crash at Roswell, and um, great to have Tom and Don back on the program. Welcome back. How are you both? Nice to be with you again, Richard. Same here, Richard. Great to be back. 75th anniversary. What's uh, Now, the original came out, I think, in 2009, so 13 years ago. So what is new in Witness to Roswell, the 75th anniversary edition? Wow. <laughs> uh, actually, the uh, the first edition came out in 2007, Richard. Ah. Uh, it uh, did so well. It was the uh, top-selling not only book about Roswell, but the top-selling uh, UFO book in the world for two years. And the second edition followed in 2009, which also became the top-selling UFO book uh, in 2009. So uh, that's what precedes the current book. Uh, we, we This will actually be our 11th book, if I have the count right. This will be our 11th book about the Roswell incident. And uh, it uh, is a uh, third edition, updated, uh, revised, for the 75th anniversary, and uh, certainly the the last big event for Roswell, Richard, was the 50th anniversary back in 1997, and uh, so this is 25 years after that. We don't think we're going to make it to the uh, 100th anniversary. So <laughs> speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so. so uh, we had it. We put together a new edition, updated and revised, with new conclusions. And I believe the you know we want to save something for the readers. So, but they will certainly find it well worth their time. So, seventy-five years, the eyewitnesses, I would imagine, all gone. Most of many of the children, if not most of the children of the witnesses have passed, I'm guessing. Starting so to, has, yes. has the final chapter on, on Roswell been written? Well, as you mentioned, just with the families, we find ourselves still coming across information from family members, from relatives. They pass it on. And the wonderful thing about even secondhand testimony, that if it corroborates the firsthand that we've collected over these past um, over 30 years, it becomes uh, very substantial. And so uh, the investigation remains fluid in that regard because we still intend on tracking down families, especially those of 
many of the reluctant witnesses we had encountered who refused to, uh, you know, give us any information right up to their very deathbeds. And the hope now is that they did finally pass something on to a wife, uh, a son or daughter, that can then be related to us. So, uh, it's, as Tom knows, it's always exciting when we get a piece of new information. And as often as we've had phones slammed down on us and doors slammed in our faces through the years, it's something that most of our colleagues in the field have never dealt with. Um, to them, an investigation is something over the phone. Maybe you go out into the field and uh, you kick the ground around a little bit. You look up into the sky with a pair of binoculars, mm-hmm. and maybe you have some witnesses present to relive the experience. That's the extent of it. But Roswell, given that it is a granddaddy of them all, and because it encompasses every possible aspect of a UFO case, or any event for that matter, where you have wreckage, you have bodies, you have a survivor, you have civilian witnesses, you have military from different facilities, and then you have the testing and the analysis, and then everything that has transpired up to today, which has necessitated the fact, as you mentioned at the beginning, Richard, that we are now up to four official explanations. Uh, Tom and I often joke, you know, husbands, try that with your wives. But, you know, the government, we we let them get away with that. And it still comes back to who has all the eyewitnesses. Well, we do. The government has zero. No one. And that's why we've often been told we could go in any court of law and win this hands down. And that confidence and that level of accomplishment has only grown through the years. If you had to uh, take this case to court... And all of the witnesses, the Mac Brazels, the Sheriff Wilcox, the Jesse Marcells, the Colonel Blanchards, the Brigadier General Roger Ramey and Brigadier General Thomas DuBose, who would you put on the stand as your star witness? Well, uh, Richard, we, there are several star witnesses. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of uh, uh, numer- numerical superiority. I would say the first witness we would put on, at least this was my humble opinion, would be uh, 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 Lieutenant Colonel Edwin Easley. This, uh, he was interviewed early on around 1990-1991 when uh, our investigation had uh, Uh, We were still presented with a possible crash on the plains of St. Augustine, which is 150 miles west of of Roswell, uh, as the the possible location of the crash. We weren't sure. But uh, uh, Kevin Randall interviewed uh, uh, Easley, and uh, to every question that Kevin asked him, he, he said, I can't answer that. I'm sworn to secrecy. Okay, another question. Nope, sworn to secrecy. So I know myself, if, you know, if I get that answer often enough, I say, well, have a nice day, uh, uh, Colonel. Uh, thank you. But uh, I guess Kevin, like, uh, he was getting near the end, and he had answered every question with that, I can't speak to you because I'm sworn to secrecy. Kevin said, well, can you answer us this? Are we going in the right direction? 
and there's a pause, and Easley says, well, what, what, what direction is that? And uh, Kevin uh, said something to the effect, well, we, we think it's a UFO, a captured flying a saucer, crashed flying saucer. And so there's another pause, and Easley says, well, let me put it to you this way. You're not going in the wrong direction. Well, that was a, that was a sea change for, for us. I, I had not yet joined the, the investigation yet, so this occurred uh, uh, maybe a year before I joined. But that was a sea change because it focused our investigation uh, that it was really a crash of a flying saucer or rather than a weather balloon or anything else. And uh, that's who I would put on first. Uh, Don maybe uh, would agree, or he has another uh, someone else like Walter Howard. I, I don't know what uh, what he would say. Should I? Should I? Yes. <laughs> uh, please, please I, I would. Do. I would concur as to the importance of Easley, who was a uh, head of the the 1395th MP unit. So he was in charge of all security at the the uh, recovery sites and then at the base itself. So in other words, everything that went down. He would have been privy to. He would have been, uh, you know, giving out orders as far as all the enlisted men, everyone who was involved. But uh, in my case, it would be the civilian, the principal civilian, that being the ranch foreman, W.W. Mac Brazel, because not only the debris field, but also a number of the bodies at a uh, another site, and then specifically the way he was then abducted, kidnapped by the military, the way he was kept for five days, deprived of water, food, uh, kept up all hours of the night. And then when he later, when he would talk about the indignity, how embarrassed, and the fact that he was subjected to a full body cavity search, that type of thing. Can you imagine describing that on a, on a, in a courtroom, on a stand, that you were subjected to a full body cavity search looking for pieces of a weather balloon? I, I would like to add another one, a third one, if I could. Another uh, another sea change type of uh, witness, uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, later General uh, Thomas Jefferson Dubose. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, now the official Air Force explanation for years at that time was uh, that it was a weather balloon. They first said it was a flying saucer, which they were correct about that. But then uh, within hours, they changed it to a uh, crashed weather balloon. Well, in 1990, 91, uh, I think Don interviewed him. It's, I think Stanton Friedman interviewed him. And Don, the two of us did, correct, on two different occasions, right. Yes. Don interviewed him, and the main uh, point of uh, DuBose's, uh, testimony. Now, DuBose was the uh, second in command. He was the adjutant uh, commander, deputy commander at Fort Worth, Texas, Fort Worth Army Airfield, the uh, headquarters of the 8th Army, which the 509th Bomb Group in Roswell reported to. And uh, during the press conference, this is a, the weather balloon press conference, uh, DuBose is present, and Ramey puts out the weather balloon story. Well, that holds for years. Uh, and in 1990-91, Don interviews 
uh, DuBose, and DuBose says, well, that weather balloon story, that was a construct. We put together that story. It wasn't true, but uh, we were told to get mm -hmm. uh, make up a story to get the press off General Ramey's back. So we put out this weather balloon story. It's not what happens, happened, but that's, that's what that story was. It was just to get the press off General Ramey's back. It wasn't true. So I would, I would say that's a, another important witness. Certainly, uh, 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 Jesse Marcel also, the uh, first military person at, uh, that uh, was at the crash site. So, and, and uh, perhaps Don could talk about, uh, maybe, maybe he, I'm sure he would include Marcel. I would, and, and the fact that we have uh, eyewitness testimony, we have good reason to believe that Marcel also was aware of the bodies recovered. And so um, we ourselves would love to have had the opportunity to, to, to question Marcel. And I think uh, the one thing that uh, we, we still consider investigative malpractice is the earlier investigators, they never thought about taking the very head of intel of the 509th at Roswell, you know, the, the highest-ranking officer to first arrive at the scene of the crash. And the, the investigators never bothered to take him out there to have him actually relive the experience, describe what he saw where and the extent of the debris and uh, his impression being back there after all those years. And uh, we would have relished such, uh, the, such an opportunity. And uh, we just came into, uh, Marcel had died in 86, so we missed him by three to four years. When Jesse Marcel went back to the base and they were putting this report together, uh, who, and, you know, he was saying this is, this is not of this world and so forth. Who overruled him in the writing of that report and told him, you know, you're not happy with it, take it up with Washington? Well, it, it, Marcel, that wasn't Marcel. Uh, Cavett wrote the report. Uh, this was the uh, the CIC uh, Counterintelligence Corps uh, Captain Sheridan Cavett was not under the command of the uh, the 509th group. He his command was in Washington, the, the, the Counterintelligence Corps. So uh, he went out to the crash site with Marcel, and uh, you know he saw everything that Marcel had seen, namely wreckage from a crashed UFO and uh, so they come back to the base uh, uh, Cabot came back first with uh, with a load of wreckage and then Marcel came a little later and uh, what happened was that they they sent Marcel off to Fort Worth because they had changed the story they were going to change the story rather so they send Marcel to Fort Worth with a plane load of wreckage, and uh, Cabot remains in uh, Roswell. So uh, when Marcel gets back, the story had changed, but he demands from his compatriot who was at the crash site with him, what did you, I want to see your report to the CIC command in Washington. Uh, his next uh, uh, higher boss actually was in Albuquerque, a fellow named uh, Doyle Reese. I want to see that report. And uh, Cabot says, you can't, re nope, you can't see it. And, and Marcel was a major, 
and Cavett was a captain. He says, I outrank you. Give it to me. And he says, no, I don't answer to you, uh, Jesse. Uh, I answer to the people in Washington. Take it up with them. So he never did get to see that report. When he was posing, uh, when Jesse Marcel Sr. was f- forced to pose with the picture, pictures of the, uh, what was, you know, the, the remnants of a weather balloon in Fort Worth, and you can see on his face this look of, oh, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. you know, what, you know, what, what did they just do to me? What, what kind of a fast one are they trying to pull here? Um and in the picture, we also have uh, Roger Ramey. And then later, I think Ramey is posing with the same debris with Lieutenant Colonel – I'm sorry, Brigadier General uh, Thomas DuBose, if I'm not mistaken. Well, Colonel at that time, Colonel DuBose. Oh, Colonel. Right. Colonel DuBose. Right. Uh, and and uh, this brings me to the, the famous uh, Ramey memo because there's mm-hmm. – this just broke a few years ago when Ramey was holding something in his in his hand – and a photographer first. Well, you walk us through the story. Who first noticed that memo? Who who was able to kind of enlarge it? And and what did it what did it say? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna set it up. I'm gonna set up a press conference quickly, and then I'm gonna toss it to Tom because Tom spent a lot of early years working on that memo. So let me just start by uh, coming back to the original press release and the fact that the only person that is mentioned in that release was Major Marcel, only name that's in the press release. And he's conveniently, initially, on his way to Wright Field. He left at 3 o'clock that afternoon of Tuesday, July 8th, within just a few hours after that press release hit the wire services. Now, the base commander, Colonel Blanchard, he's announced he's going on leave. Well, anyone who's been in the military, including Tom, you realize you don't go on leave after a holiday weekend because then you could dock for both. You would tie the two together. So it made absolutely no sense on a 4th of July weekend that on a Tuesday, July 8th, you would then finally go on leave. Well, in in reality, as uh, his operations officer, Colonel uh, uh, Joseph Briley, told us that the leave was a blind, as he called it that he actually had set up a base of operation at the crash site, have open radio communication back to Washington and Fort Worth. And so that's where he was. And he was undercover, earlier, so to speak. Uh, sorry, Don, i got to jump in here because we have to take a time out. Apologies okay. for the interruption. We'll come back and pick it up on the other side. Donald Schmidt and Thomas Carey are with us as we commemorate the 75th anniversary of Roswell and the 75th anniversary edition of Witness to Roswell uh, just released this month. Back with more of our conversation right after these. All right. Welcome back. Don Schmidt is uh, with us and Thomas Carry as well as we discuss the 75th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident and the 75th anniversary edition of Witness to Roswell just out uh, this month. Uh, so, uh, Don, we're talking about the, um, the Roger Ramey uh, memo. He was setting up we're the, setting uh, the press up. conference Correct. and how Colonel Howard had circumstances uh, were left. and how it, it, it came uh, to uh, actually be available. Left and- on leave on that Tuesday. Uh, just after a long weekend, which was kind of odd. But in fact, he, he, he was not leave. He went out to the crash site and was doing a little investigating of his own. Correct. Well, set up a base of operation, as they would call it. Correct. The rancher, the rancher reported the crash, crash 
he he is abducted uh, uh, by the military. By the military. So, so he's in communication. He's in communication. And, and Jesse Marcel, he is of the impression he's going to Fort Worth to take some of the actual debris there to be tested and analyzed. Well, mid-flight, they're told they're, they're making a preliminary stop at Fort Worth. That General Ramey wanted to see the wreckage. So Marcel would describe how he would take some of the actual wreckage to Ramey's office, place it on his desk. They'd go to a map room. And when they would return, the actual material is now gone. It's missing. And in its place is that weather balloon, that neoprene rubber balloon with a radar reflector kite, and hexagonal Rowan target device, which is foil, wooden sticks, string, and tape. And in the hallway are a whole cluster of reporters who have been tipped off that there's going to be a press conference and they're going to actually display the flying saucer, pieces of the flying saucer from Roswell. Well, wouldn't you know it that Ramey then only allows one single reporter by the name of James B. Johnson of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram to take pictures. The rest are kept in the hallway. So much for this being an open press conference. And as you were describing, Richard, how then Marcel is ordered by Ramey to crouch down and pose with the substituted balloon, holding up sheets of the uh, radar kite. He's then told not to say a word to any of the reporters in the hallway, and they keep him overnight. He's not allowed to even fly back to Roswell till the next evening. Well, in the subsequent pictures, as you mentioned, there are two shots of Ramey alone, and then two additional of Ramey and DeBose. And in all those four shots, he's holding what uh, is a piece of paper, which we identified back in 1990 already, what appeared to be a press release, a telex. And at that time, when we learned that the original negative still existed, we managed to get copies, and we saw that we were just on the cusp, that we were, just, we were that close to hopefully being able to read what we suspected was nothing more than a, a press release about the weather balloon. And Dr. Richard Haynes did some computer enhancement, and he came up with one word, balloon, which would further you know, solidify our position at that time, in 1990, that this was a press release about the weather balloon. Well, we were wrong. And so I'll let Tom take it from there, because uh, the rest is, uh, is now history. Yes, uh, back when Richard Haynes uh, did his analysis, the uh, I don't know if it was just the magnifying glass or uh, the... Computer and, enhancement, Tom. It was computer enhancement. That's all it was at that time. Okay, well, it wasn't, wasn't as sophisticated as later uh, photographic software, uh, so he could only uh, identify one word, which uh, was balloon, as Don said. But later on, and beginning, I guess, in the Somewhere in the mid-1990s, uh, uh, a fellow by the name of uh, Dr. David Rudiak, an optometrist, uh, he was an expert with uh, computer software, and I myself had the computer, I still have a computer software, but uh, just to speak of my, my uh, analysis first, uh, 
Stanton Friedman had also made a copy of these photographs. I think there was a total of six photographs taken. And if you if you uh, go by the folds in the telex that uh, Ramey is holding, you can tell which photos came before another you know, in sequence. Well, the photo we're talking about uh, was the last one with uh, Ramey in it. And in it, you can see he's got the, he was during, between the takes, between the photographic takes, you can see that he was trying to quickly read this telex because it had more folds in it as the, as the uh, uh, photo shoot progressed. So the one uh, we're talking about, it, there, it shows about one-third of the page of the telex, beginning at the top. And uh, Stan Friedman had also made a copy of it, and uh, I actually bought a, a CD disc from Stan for, t for $25. So I took a look at it. And so help me, this is the honest-to-God truth. When I brought it up on my computer, within 10 seconds, I was able to read the victims of the wreck you forwarded to the blank at Fort Worth, Texas. The victims of the wreck that you forwarded to Fort Worth, Texas. And uh, I, within 10 seconds, I was able to read that. I also was able to read the words uh, meaning of story, which was, was talking about the press release, uh, weather, and also weather balloons would make, uh, and as it turned out, would make the, their story better if they demonstrated. And the last uh, was uh, something about uh, Ray Wind weather, uh, Ray Wind crews in uh, uh, Roswell. So I was able to get that much out of it, but uh, David Rudiak got a lot more than I did because, you know, he's an optometrist. And, <laughs> but uh, basically that was, uh, he, he developed the, the sentence, sentence that there was a second site and that there were aviators in the disc and uh, they mentioned Roswell. Things that I couldn't make out, David was able to uh, make out. And what it did is it proved the, uh, you know, what, what sort of victim does a balloon coming to gr the ground, uh, what sort of victim can that have? It lands on your head and you, you laugh about it. So, uh, so it was a smoking gun. I, I believe we still call it the smoking gun of Roswell. The... Um the two Air Force reports, uh, facts versus fiction in the New Mexico desert and then case closed. Um, did they did they interview um, then Brigadier General Thomas DuBose? Did they mention the um, the uh, the Ramey memo? Did any of that come up in either of those reports? Well, the DuBose had already passed in 91 so uh, the mogul report came out in september of 1994 and the main reason as even newsweek magazine put it when we were fortunate enough to become involved with the late congressman stephen schiff of new mexico and uh... You know, schiff for you know trying to get answers through the white house and through the different branches of the military 
and uh, and the Pentagon being denied even by the Secretary of Defense, Les Aspen, at that time on three separate occasions that um, he had a promise from the Air Force, specifically the Air Force, should they find anything, he would be the first. Well, (laughs) keeping as far as, you know, as far as maintaining their policy of deception and cover-up, he was the last because they went public. They had a press conference in September of 94 where Colonel Richard Weaver announced that uh, the original balloon explanation was a lie and they presented their new theory about this Russian spy balloon called Mogul. Well, the fact that they were they were coming out with a third explanation at that time and we were surprised that the only witness that they went out of their way to speak with was Captain Sheridan Cabot, then a retired lieutenant colonel. And what I don't think they were privy to was the fact that we also were in contact with uh, Colonel Cabot. And in fact, we were there with the Cabots, both uh, Sheridan and his wife Mary, in May of 1994 at their home in Squim, Washington. And as we were leaving, after again spending another afternoon with Cabot denying he was involved, that there was anything recovered, that was nothing out of the ordinary. And all at once his wife says, tell the boys about the colonel from the Pentagon who was just here to interview you. And he (laughs) gives her a look, you know, that could cut through steel. And then he whirls and he looks at us and goes, yeah, and I told him exactly as I'm telling you. I wasn't involved. Well, aren't we surprised that when we see the report come out in September that there's a full-blown, you know, sworn affidavit, Cabot, you know, describing the full recovery and that he immediately recognized it as being this mogul balloon, and albeit he never bothered to tell the base commander at Roswell, or even Major Marcel, who was with him at the time. But uh, he referred to his interviewing, uh, being interviewed by us, and um, it just was the fact that they specifically selected as a star witness the one person that they knew would stand by their third explanation, and that being this mogul balloon nonsense. Which is All right, Don, I've got to jump in. Uh, again, sorry for the interruption. We'll come back. Thomas Carey and Donald Schmidt stay with us as we continue to delve into the incident at Roswell, the 75th anniversary. Stay with us. Witness to Roswell, the 75th anniversary edition, just out this month in anticipation of the actual 75th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident, July of uh, this year will mark, again, 75 years. And Thomas Carey and Donald Schmidt uh, stay with us. Um, I was talking about the um, the two Air, U.S. Air Force whitewashes, uh, fact mm-hmm. versus fiction, and case closed. Um has there ever been any discussion about a, I don't know, a third, getting them to write a third one, but maybe a little more open, open-minded, like, you know, so they could go back and consider some of the evidence that the two of you, for example, have uncovered with eyewitness testimony and, and deathbed confessions and so forth? 
You, you mean by the Air Force? Or even Congress. Well, I believe, uh, I'm trying to think, there was a, a congressional one-day hearing in 1968 after the uh, Ann Arbor-Dexter, Michigan sightings. Uh, there was a one-day conference, and it led to nothing. And uh, certainly, Roswell has become known around the world. Uh, certainly, the the 1997 50th anniversary and uh, uh, did a lot to uh, publicize the case. And I believe the most important book up until then was the uh, not only the 1980 Roswell incident book, but uh, Randall and Schmidt's uh, 1991 UFO case, uh, UFO crash at Roswell. But uh, no, the, the the Air Force. Here, here's the thing, uh, Richard. You know, because of those. 2017, uh, Luis Elizondo uh, produced videos uh, from the Navy, where they had the gun camera video of, uh, you know, chasing UFOs. Uh, one in, uh, off the West Coast in 2004, this so-called Nimitz uh, event, and one in 2014 and 15, the USS uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, that has lended an air of credibility to the whole subject of UFOs. And uh, a new task force uh, was created in uh, 2007, the ATIP, uh, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Project, for five years. And uh, its successor, uh, the uh, U.S., uh, the UAP, that's the government's new term, for UFOs, they'll never say UFO. They'll call it UAPs, uh, unidentified aerial phenomenon. Uh, those uh, they've created a new U.S. task force. But the thing is, and I think Don will agree with me on this, that they will never revisit Roswell. I mean, they will concentrate on more recent sightings, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because they can't go back to Roswell because they will have to admit that they have been lying to us for 75 years about the phenomenon of UFOs, and they will also have to answer for the civil rights violation that the government, uh, the Air Force, the Army Air Corps, perpetrated upon the civilians of Roswell and Corona, New Mexico, back in 47 to silence them. And they don't want to answer for that, and they don't want to answer that they've been lying to us for 75 years about something, well, geez, what else have they been lying to us about? So uh, that's what I believe. Anyway, I don't know if Don uh, uh, agrees with me on that or not. I suspect yes, I do. Uh, yes, I do. Sense. And what's interesting about sense. the current UAP report that came out last June, that they only acknowledged the phenomenon back to 2004. Right, right. Sir. And I think that was done very intentionally that the fallback could still be someone else's technology. But going back to the 40s and 50s, and you know, Russia was hardly in the position, and, and China was still a third-world country during all those decades. So they couldn't, they wouldn't acknowledge anything back to 1947. 
for the reason that Tom mentioned and also for the fact that unlike this elusive phantom that it's out there and we're, we're, we're trying to determine what it is and what its origins and what its intentions are, well, to acknowledge Roswell, they'd have to actually you know, uh, reveal the fact that, well, yeah, we did capture one. We, we have the remnants. We have the debris. We have you know, the, the, the craft. We have the bodies, that type of thing. But I think, Richard, you'd find it even more interesting when Tom and I are asked today, where do you believe the Roswell wreckage presently is? Oh, yeah. Listen, I'm gonna, we're going to leave that as a cliffhanger, uh, Don, because this was a short segment. We're going to pick that up okay. on that point exactly on the other side. Don Schmidt and Tom Carey stay with us. The uh, 75th anniversary edition of Witness to Roswell. We'll tell you how to get a copy as well. Stay with us. All right, Don Schmidt was just about to reveal where you believe the um, wreckage from Roswell uh, lies. And I'm going to toss days. it. I'm going to toss this to Tom because uh, <laughs> he loves. I mean, making this major revelation because uh, it's also one of the reasons that they are not forthcoming because they would have to acknowledge the fact that. They don't have it any longer. They've lost track of it. They don't know where much of it is, if not all of it, by today's standards. So go ahead, Tom. Yes. Uh, we have an associate in Florida, and he, uh, he has allowed me to use his name as Anthony Bergaglia. And he's, been, uh, he's an independent investigator, indefatigable if I'm pronouncing that right he's indefatigable he doesn't take no for an answer like if somebody slams the phone down on him that would be enough for me to end the conversation but he calls them right back and says you're not going to you know slam the phone down on me and he, he's just indefatigable so his quest in the Roswell investigation has been trying to find out what happened to the wreckage? Where did it go? Well, we know from witness uh, testimony over the years that it was taken to, most of it went to Wright Field in Dayton, Ohio, and now Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Most of it went there. Perhaps some of it went to Los Alamos and Alamogordo and places like that, but most of it went to uh, Wright Field. So uh, he got the he was also trying to find out if any back engineering had taken place with the wreckage. He, he found out, yes, they had contracted, uh, Wright uh, Patterson contracted with Battelle Memorial Institute in Columbus, Ohio, just down the road from uh, Wright Patterson. And they were tasked with the uh, job of trying to back engineer the so-called memory metal. This is the metal. A lot of the wreckage was this small pieces of memory metal where it was light as a feather, looked like, you know, thin aluminum. You could, but you could wad it up in your hand and crumple it up and open your hand and it would just float there in the air and uh, uh, it would not have a crease on it. You couldn't cut it, burn it, deform it in any way permanently. So he wanted to know what they were doing with it in uh, Battelle and uh, he discovered that in 1990, uh, excuse me, uh, 1962, the Naval Ordnance Lab, because Battelle didn't want to have their name on anything having to do with UFOs or flying saucers, 
So they laundered the uh, discovery or the development of something called nitinol. They had, over the years, they had uh, tried, uh, you know, to to meld uh, elements together, metals together to, to you know, uh, re, re, uh, recapture the uh, uh, qualities of this memory metal. So in 1962, the Naval Ordnance Lab announces the development of something called nitinol. The NI stands for nickel, the TI stands for titanium, and the NOL stands for Naval Ordnance Lab. And you can look it up on your computer. You can buy it by the roll, by the coil, and it uh, it's our best uh, uh, chance, our, our best uh, final result of trying to uh, recapture the, uh, the properties of the so-called memory metal. So, uh, and and the thing is, Anthony, he has the the progress reports because Mattel would would uh, report to Wright Patterson, uh, you know, every so often on their progress, and he has those progress reports. So that's one thing that they did uh, develop from the Roswell crash. Now, as far as oh my goodness, I forgot what, what was. <laughs> Oh, we were talking about where is the wreckage? Where is the wreckage? Okay. Where is it now? So, Anthony, in 2017, after viewing the Luis, Luis Elizondo videos, he put together a FOIA request, Freedom of Information Act request, to the Department of uh, the uh, Defense Intelligence Agency at the Pentagon. He put together a FOIA request wanting to know where the UFO wreckage is. Where is it? Where do you have it? And what have you uh, been doing with it? And three years goes by, no answer. No answer. So uh, Anthony has the uh, ability to uh, file a lawsuit. uh, So he says, okay, you're not going to answer me. I am going to file a lawsuit for... uh, for you to respond. So he had an answer within two weeks, and it was from the FOIA spokesperson for the Department of Intelligence or the Defense uh, Intelligence Agency on on their uh, you know uh, stationery. They said the wreckage UFO. They called it UAP, not UFO. The UFO wreckage is no longer in government hands. It's in private hands. It's at the, uh, uh, the fellow's name is Robert Bigelow. Bigelow Aerospace in Las Vegas, Nevada is where it's at. And here's what they've been working on. Now, I won't go into all the titles of some of these projects that they were working on and still are at Bigelow, but they appear to, to be testing or, or investigating time travel. It's uh, slowing down the speed of light. One of the projects is trying to slow down the speed of light, believe it or not. Don't ask, don't ask me how you do that. But these there are these exotic uh, programs that they're, they're doing with the, uh, certainly the Roswell wreckage. Of, uh, it, it looks to me like they're trying to, uh, to discover the, uh, the nexus of the time travel. Uh, you know, from my uh, understanding of what I read. So, so that's in a, where in the a, wreckage in a, in is. A, a freedom of information. 
uh, request, he was told that the UFO crash debris or wreckage is no longer in government hands. Right there, that one document, I mean, we talked about the Roger Ramey memo being the smoking gun. Isn't that, in fact, the smoking gun? The government has acknowledged they were at one time in possession of crashed or a, a, a crashed UFO? Well, the, the Ramey memo, the key word in the Ramey memo, because it, it was, there's a lot of grain in it, so you just can't keep enlarging it because you enlarge the grain as well. But the key word in the Ramey memo, and I think Don will agree with me, is the word victims. Because mm-hmm. no balloon coming to the ground, you know, they go up, they expand, they explode, and they come down. There's going to be no victims to a balloon. Uh, Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> so this this FOIA no request, the government is admitting the that they request, had, they had past tense possession of the UFO, and now they don't. I mean that they, that to me now in private hands because private companies and Bigelow Aerospace was already in the business of uh, government contracts. So uh, and Robert Bigelow himself. Uh, was a good friend of uh, Senator Harry Reid, who got this uh, A-tip program going. Right. So you know that's that's how it all worked. Is they were good friends, and so of the twenty-two million dollars under the A-tip program, most of it went to Bigelow Aerospace. So they were already in that business. So uh, and you know uh, Las Vegas, uh, Bigelow is is in Las Vegas and. Uh, Area 51 is not far from there. So we think the wreckage was there at some point, but now it's in private hands at Bigelow Aerospace. And uh, it, it's, you know, it all falls together. Has Bigelow well, Tom, confirmed Richard, or denied he's in possession? What Richard is asking that even with the response to the FOIA request regarding their one-time possession of the wreckage,